Here we are at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. If you are new with us this morning, whether here physically or online, a warm welcome to all of you. I'm doing kind of a mini-series here in the fall from September to December. Really, it's September, October, November of the seven churches of Asia found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And really, if I was going to sum it up, it would be like the hope and the help of the gospel to today's church. And truly, as we just read this, I think we would say this is pertinent and timely. This is something that is contextually relevant to you and I here in our neck of the woods of, on this place called planet Earth here in St. John's, Newfoundland, and indeed around the world. But if I was going to give you a theme for today as we look at the church of Smyrna, it's this, the help or the hope of the gospel helps us in all of life's circumstances. The hope of the gospel helps us in all of life's circumstances. And I really think this is timely. Here we are, it's September the 11th of 2022, if you can believe it, it's been 21 years since that fateful day when we saw those planes crash into the towers in New York City, in Washington at the Pentagon, and the one that was crashed just inside of Pennsylvania. And yet, what has life been like over the last 21 years? A series of ups and downs, isn't it? Maybe we thought we had put that in the rearview mirror, and then comes in 2008, if you remember, there was that kind of real estate bubble and all that stuff, and the stock market stuff. Then we got through that, and it seemed like maybe we were going to be okay, and then COVID came. And really, in some senses, is still here. And then there's all kinds of other things. Monkeypox came up on, on the screen, and then all of this inflation, and we're seeing the surge of interest rates and the rise of gas and the cost of food and all of the things go with that. And we are also seeing an absolute tsunami of mental illness in our country. And we're still afraid, aren't we? What's around the next corner? What does the fall hold? What will be the next wave or the next disease? What will happen? Political unrest and turmoil. And I don't know about you, but we think we are the most blessed generation with all the technology. Every one of you in here likely has a phone, maybe has more than one. And you have access to more information instantaneously more than ever before in the history of planet Earth. And I would submit it really hasn't made us all that much happier, has it? In fact, it might, if we're being honest, stressed us out, made us more anxious, made us more cynical, suspicious. So let me ask you, are you one of the billions on planet Earth today who are tired or discouraged? Are you, as professing Christians, many of you in this room would say, I am a Christian. Are you brave enough to be honest and say, you know what, but I am a little wary in well-doing. How many of you, either in the last week, month, year, season of life, feel you've been taken advantage of? Has someone blamed you for something you didn't do? Have you had doubts this past week about yourself, your marriage, your family, your job, your health, your security, your stability, your decisions? Have you wondered, if I can dare ask a room full of professing Christians, have you wondered 
Where is Jesus? Has someone said something bad about you? Have you been the brunt of gossip or slander? Have you found out bad news this week? Are you feeling overrun, overworked, and underappreciated? Some of you feel overworked and underpaid. Have any of you experienced the sting of a lost friendship because you are a Christian? Have you lost out on a job promotion, been made fun of or laughed at? Have you done everything right and yet it seems like everything is going wrong? Have you taken one step forward only to feel like you're taking three steps back? Can I ask some of you to introspectfully ask and answer honestly, both here and online, is there times that you feel like a failure? Like it's not worth it. Like Jesus may, just maybe Jesus has forgotten you or that it seems like Satan seems to be winning this one. Have you ever doubted your salvation? Ever wondered, is the Bible really true? Is this Christian stuff really all worthwhile? Primally, can we be honest and ask, have we ever wondered, can God really be trusted? Have you read your Bible and prayed only to feel like you were attacked? Have you ever asked Jesus, why you? You are the one that seems to be chosen to be sick or go through that battle with depression or suffering or losing friends or even being known there is no sin in your life, yet you feel like, why do I have to suffer? And I don't know if you're willing to admit it, but I will stand before you and say, I have answered yes to every one of the things I have just said to you at some point in my life. If you have, like me, have answered yes to any of these things, or even all of these things, then I would submit to you that the letter to the church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, are just for you, for us. It is a letter to today's church, to this church, to all of you in churches that are gathered online, that maybe you couldn't be at them, whoever you are. And last week, if you remember, we began our look at these seven churches to whom the entire book of Revelation is written. It isn't that there's just chapter 2 and 3, these seven random churches. These were seven carefully selected churches, and everything that follows in verses uh, chapters 4 to 22 are also for those seven churches, which means they're for us. Real people, in real churches, in real time. I beg of you again, don't make the book of Revelation your Star Wars book of the Bible. I actually think whoever wrote Starboard probably ripped off the Bible. But we don't want to do these types of things. This whole book with individual letters was meant to be a blessing and an encouragement and a warning to all seven churches and to all of us. John is on the Isle of Patmos. He's going to receive this series of visions from Jesus through an angel on the Lord's day while he's in the spirit, which means he's, he's spiritually sensitive to what's going on. It arrived first at Ephesus, about a 60-mile straight sail from Patmos. And that, remember, last week I told you that Ephesus was the capital of Asia. But next comes Smyrna. Smyrna was about 35 miles to the north of Ephesus. 
And I want to remind you that I want to look at all seven of these churches in the light of the vision of Christ. I want to lay a foundation for us this fall as a church, as a network of churches, as God delivers us. And Lord willing, over the coming months, we transition one more time into another physical building. Lord willing to put down roots. We need to have the vision of Christ found in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. Let me read these to you if in, in the vernacular of today's language. Jesus replied, answering, remember, that Jewish lawyer that went to him and said, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. In the Gospel of Mark, he adds the word strength. And then these are the words of Jesus. These aren't my words. These are Jesus' words. Jesus says, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, in other words, love God and then love others. All of the other commandments and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. And believe it or not, that large opening I gave you with all those personal questions are meant for you to understand that how you answer or how you think you do with love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and how that then transforms you and I to love other people. By the way, people that are easy to love and people that are not easy to love will actually determine what you feel and how you view life when life doesn't go according to your plans. Remember last week, Ephesus was the church that was orthodox. It had all their theological ducks in a row, and they were a busy, busy church, but they had left something. They didn't lose it. They left it. It's their first love, their love of Christ. And if you want the New Testament equivalent to that in regards to explanation, look no further than 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13 that we often sing at weddings and we quote at weddings, and it always makes me laugh because it's written to churches. When was the last time we sang it in church or read it to a church? Paul would tell the Corinthian church, one of the wealthiest, most gifted, richest, biggest, most influential churches in the entire New Testament. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. When Scott plays the drums, if he doesn't play those cymbals right, trust me, we would all know it and we would all cringe. There is nothing worse than an ill-timed clanging of a cymbal. Paul says, that's what it is to the ears of God. Even if you think you can communicate with men and angels, but you don't have love. He says, and if I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, this is not the love of affirmation. This is not a love and let love. 
This is not a permissive love. This is a profound biblical love of unconditional, I choose to love you, so I'll tell you the truth. I choose to love you so I don't give up on you even when it doesn't go right the first time. It's a love that transcends feelings because we can feel like loving and feel like not loving. But in God's word, love is a choice. It's not a feeling. And so Paul wants the Corinthian church, Jesus wanted the Ephesian church to know it doesn't matter how orthodox you are or how busy you are. It doesn't matter how on the ball you are and that, how much you stand for stuff. If you don't legitimately ache and love and care for people enough to, one, tell them the truth, tell them the truth with humility and patience and long-suffering and gentleness and meekness, which, by the way, is Galatians 5. That's the fruit of the Spirit. It's a love that walks with people, even when you say, you're wrong. It's a love that doesn't give up. And they had left that. This church, Ephesus, had run ahead of Christ. It had come to think of itself exactly the way the city of Ephesus saw itself as the capital, the one who controls things, who police things. They thought they were the mother church. And Jesus reminded them that he was the one in control. Because remember, he said, I am your protector. I am the Lord of the church. I am the one that walks among the candlesticks. And he called them to love him again with their heart and their soul. And by the way, the two are not mutually exclusive. If your heart loves God, your soul loves God. But Smyrna is a different story. Smyrna needed a much different message. In fact, they are one of only two churches of the seven that don't receive any noted condemnation from the Lord. They are not given any correction. They are only given compliment and encouragement. That's the only one. Only them in Philadelphia. So I find it ironic that the church that Jesus says, you stand for everything, but I am on the verge of leaving. And then at the end with Laodicea, you stand for nothing, and I'm actually trying to get in. But the church after Ephesus and before Laodicea is Smyrna and Philadelphia, the only two churches that don't get any kind of condemnation. But he reminded them, if Ephesus had run ahead of God, then Smyrna was a church about to fall behind God. One was out in front of him. One was on the verge of falling behind. They were at the height of fear. They were ready to give up. They were on the verge of quitting, literally barely hanging on. Yet Christ would give them, and us, by the way, a message of hope and an encouraging command. It really is. It's a message that rests on someone, on who Christ is and not how strong we are. I hope and pray that by the end of this, you will not be afraid to go, I am weak. I can't. I don't know how. I don't have all the answers. I struggle with saying why. But I know who has the answers. I know 
who has the strength. I know who is in control. And I choose to trust him above my feelings and my circumstances and what I can see. Let me see if I can explain it to you. The message to the church of Smyrna is about love. But only this time, the message is to love the Lord your God with all your mind and strength and not your strength or my strength. It's trusting in his love and his strength. In AD 175, Pontinus, the Bishop of Lyons, was martyred along with many Christians in his city. The Christians were accused of incest, probably because they referred to each other as brother and sister all the time in church. They were accused of cannibalism because of the way they used to say, this is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And this is what the world does. When they don't understand something and they're afraid of it and they don't want to accept it, then they will create a caricature of extreme, so therefore it creates fear in the populace. So here you have a group of people calling each other brother and sister, and those that were against them said they're cannibals. When they would celebrate something as sacred and as wonderful as the Lord's table, they would call that cannibalism. I don't know about you, but that would probably work even today. Make a viral tweet or video, start a thread, gone like wildfire around the world. But along that time, Christians were arrested and tortured and then brought into the arena to serve as public entertainment. Two by two, they were brought out before the gawking, bloodthirsty crowd, and they were tortured and thrown to the beasts. Eusebius describes the suffering of one young female slave named Belinda. Her human mistress, who was herself one of the contenders among the martyrs, was in distress lest that she should not be able through the weakness of her body to be bold enough even to make confession. So Belinda was afraid that when her time would come to suffer, she wouldn't be strong enough. And yet Belinda was filled with such power that she was released and rescued from those who took turns in torturing her in every way from morning until evening. And they themselves confessed that they were beaten. For they had nothing left to do to her, and they marveled that she still remained alive, seeing that her whole body was broken. And they testified that any one of these tortures was sufficient to destroy and break anyone, even when they had not been magnified and multiplied. But this blessed woman, like a noble athlete, kept gaining in vigor in her confession and found comfort and rest and freedom from pain and from what was done to her by saying, here's her words that she said over and over again. I am a Christian woman, and nothing wicked happens among us. When Belinda finally perished, Eusebius describes her as this. Belinda was glad at her departure, as though invited to a marriage feast rather than cast to the beasts. And the heathen themselves confessed that never before among them had a woman suffered so much and for so long. James Hamilton writes, why do people persist when suffering, surrendering would save their lives? What keeps people like this young woman named Belinda faithful unto death? How do they remain faithful unto death? Because you know what we need and what she knew she had? We need to understand what it is that keeps faith, people faithful unto death so that we can live and die well ourselves. 
Calvary Baptist, if we're going to have an understanding of the trials and hurts and even the failures of our lives, if we are going to be faithful unto death when we know how weak we are, how inconsistent we are, how hypocritical we are. If we're going to do it, then we have to have a knowledge of Jesus that is bigger to us than the reality of life and death itself. Notice in our passage, notice what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2, on the angel of the church of Smyrna write, and here are how Jesus Christ expresses himself, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He tells this church, this weak, suffering, on the verge of giving up, embarrassed, insignificant little church, he wants them to know, I am the first and the last. I am the one who is conqueror over death. I am the one who will give the crown of life to the one who conquers, will be not hurt by the second death. You see, the overall message for all of us is let me ask you, all of you where you sit right now, is Jesus bigger than death itself to you? Now be honest. This is a message of hope. It's a message of promise. And yet, it's also a message with a gentle, firm warning. Especially if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ of this letter and this word, this thing we call the Bible. But for the Christian, every single one of you that is a Christian, to those who are doubting and you're afraid, maybe you're toying with or wrestling through uh, forgiveness or bitterness, you're weary, you're ready to quit, you don't know what is the sum of your life, I don't know, why have I done it, what am I doing? Then let's look at this letter and let's look again at verse 8 and notice the description of comfort. The description of comfort I am the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. Don't forget who, what Smyrna was as a city. Smyrna was a beautiful city. In fact, when I studied about Smyrna, it reminds me of our city, the city of St. John's. Smyrna was renowned for its harbor. It had a beautiful, sheltered, safe, very calm harbor. It was actually a wonderful science and religious center. It was also known for being loyal to Rome. And although the New Testament is silent when it comes to this city and its church, although most believe it was started by Paul during his third missionary journey. But believe it or not, do you know that the word Smyrna is taken from the word myrrh? That word might sound familiar. If you remember as we make our way to Christmas and the three gifts that were given to a toddler Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It means an herb that releases a pleasant aroma when it's crushed. The church in this city, city certainly lived up to its name, didn't it? This herb was associated with Christ, not only at his birth, but at his death and not at his second coming. Christ would give this troubled little church a description of himself. Notice he says, I am the first and the last. He wanted them to know that he was God in the flesh. And what you might say, okay, first and the last, where you got to realize that is a title that Jehovah Jireh took to himself in Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. This was God speaking to Isaiah, to the nation. I am the first and the last, and besides me there is no other. 
So Jesus is reminding Smyrna, hey, listen, I am God in the flesh. Jesus was telling this church, I am the God who controls both time and eternity. Smyrna was a city that worshipped Zeus and other gods and were famous for its worship of Rome and its emperor. But Jesus was before them all and above them all. He was the king of kings, and he was the Lord of lords. And while these pawns in the hand of Almighty God may seem to have power and control, when it seems like even they controlled life itself, Jesus not only says, I am the first and the last. Now look, he says, I am the one who was dead and is now alive. Now there's not a greater oxymoron probably in our English expressions. I am the one who was dead but I'm now alive. You see, when Jesus came in the flesh, it was for a reason. And he came to conquer death and sin and Satan. And he did this by dying and being resurrected. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says this, For as much then as the children, that's the nation of Israel, are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, Christ himself, took part in the same. Why? that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus wants the church of Smyrna to know, listen, yes, you're going to face 10 days of tribulation, and I need you to be faithful unto death, and I know those who are Jews but are not are of the synagogue of Satan, and I know the kind of things, but he's basically saying, listen, the lion who roars and prowls about is attacking, but you need to know something, I've got him on a leash. And whenever I do it and whenever I go, heal, even Satan has to just go, yes, Lord. Now take that attitude to your chronic pain or your diagnosis of cancer or a lost loved one or a broken relationship or a struggling marriage or family that isn't easy or financial loss. Or you're wondering if all of your serving means anything. Or if you wonder if you've lost something that you thought you were in control of. Jesus allows Satan to do things. Jesus allowed Satan to crucify him. But the irony of ironies is that even in crucifying him, Satan actually spelled out his own defeat. See, it's only the end of the beginning. So when you and I face the hardships of life, when we face all of these things, then we need to realize Christ is saying, I'm in control. I am the first and the last. All these other gods, Zeus and Rome and the, uh, Caesar, and, they're not in charge. They're pawns for me. Chess pieces on a board. And Satan can say, he can take your life, but remember who I am. I am the one who was dead but is now alive. And watch in verse 9 and 10, he gives them a comforting commendation. He says to them, look at this, I know your works. I know your tribulation and your poverty, in brackets, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're going through. Maybe right now you have needed nothing else this morning but to hear the words that whatever you're dealing with right now, anger, frustration, fatigue, anxiety, discouragement, depression, 
to hear the words that Jesus says, I know what you're feeling and I know what you're going through. Jesus acknowledges the three things that they were particularly going through, tribulations. I mean, do I really have to ask you to raise your hands and say, can I get a witness if you're going through tribulations? Jesus told the disciples that this would happen in John chapter 15, remember? If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And you notice, Jesus said it in the beginning of John chapter 16, by the way. But when he gets to the end of it, he says, the world will be against you, but do not fear because I have overcome the world. And they will be put out of synagogues. He told the disciples, yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will actually think they're doing God's service. And these things they will do to you because they've not known God the Father, nor me, God the Son. So Calvary Baptists, we're going to face hardships. Just like the church of Smyrna, this church lived in the capital of Roman worship in AD 26. This city competed and won against 10 other cities to build a temple to Tiberius for the very worship of the emperor. This city hated Christians. They didn't tolerate those who would not conform to their standards of right and wrong. Does that not sound familiar? And Jesus says, I know your poverty through persecution, legal persecution. They had lost a lot of things. Possession-wise, job-wise. They were now probably the lower standard of economics. But this Christian love and steadfastness, this church was earthly poor, but Christ told them they're spiritually rich. Drastically different from what he would later tell the Laodicean church who thought that they were rich, and he said, you're poor, blind, and naked. Remember again, the writer of Hebrews said, he says, you suffered along with those who were thrown into jail when all you owned was taken from you. You accepted it with joy. You knew you had better things waiting for you in eternity. You see, I, I, look, I, I need to be full, full disclosure. When I read these passages, it is easy. It literally is easy to stand up here and go, yeah, we need to rejoice when we don't have stuff because we're rich in Christ. But then... Let's walk out there afterwards and have two flat tires while it's torrential rain and see who feels rich in Christ. I mean, literally, that's how weak we are, right? That's how weak I am. I was preparing this sermon this morning. Preparing this sermon, thinking about how can I have passion and explain to you the glorious call to trust in Jesus. And I buttered a slice of bread with peanut butter and dropped it on the floor, banging it off my knee and foot and went, Lord, why me? Because that's how weak we are. But here's what I want you to understand. It doesn't make me a spiritual rock star because I can put in perspective dropping a piece of peanut butter bread. It's to understand the glorious privilege I have that I can own the fact that I'm that weak, but my salvation and my eternity is not based on my strength but His. When my granddaughter drops the same piece of bread and feels like her whole life has crashed around her. My job as her ginky 
is to remind her, I've got lots of other pieces of bread. And I can take care of you in ways you can't even imagine. And this is what Jesus wants this church to know in their poverty. But then it gets really close because then he says, I know your slander. This church was picked out and picked on. Especially by those who should have known better. The Jews enjoyed religious freedom by Romans, but lately had fallen out of favor and they compromised in many ways, often offering incense in the name of the emperor, but saying they did so in Jehovah's name. So this is what the Jews did to maintain their political freedom and favor. They would offer that pinch, but then they would wink, wink to each other and go, but we know we're doing it for Jehovah. And then they would point out and say, but that Christian, he won't do it. She won't do it. Get mad at them. Have you not experienced that in today's culture? These who said they worship God rejected the one whom God had sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus would say of these people, you are of your father the devil and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and and didn't abide in the truth because there was no truth in him. Can you imagine being turned in by those who claim to believe in the same God you do? Hmm. But I want you to realize something. Notice what Jesus tells them. Verse 10, do not fear Now, we love to end it there, right? The prosperity gospel says, do not fear, but finish the sentence. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. That was actually the message of encouragement. It wasn't come to Jesus, right? Because Newfoundland loves country music Jesus. Come to Jesus. You get your dog back, your truck back, your job back, your wife back, your kids back. We all love country music Jesus, don't we? But this is not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Like Belinda, the world took its best shot. And with every torture they could imagine, she would say, I am a child of God. Was it Matt Chandler that would say that Paul must have been very frustrating for those Romans? You know, if he was rich... He just gave it away. If he was poor, he worked. If he was in prison, he had a praise and worship night and prayer meeting at midnight. If he was in the house of Chloe, he would just simply do more things. If people died, he raised them from the dead. He was stoned to death, crawled up out of that, risen from the, went back in to preach. Like you just couldn't tick this dude off or you couldn't discourage him. That should be us as Christians. Not because we've got it all figured out, not because we're a great church, not because we're strong, but because he is. And that's why the most often repeated phrase in the entire Bible is, be not afraid. And let's be honest though, we struggle with this so much, I know I do. I'm afraid of just about everything. Some of you laugh because you know I'm afraid of bumblebees and wasps and everything with a stinger. And my mom is here, and she needs to own her sin because she made me afraid of those things. I'm afraid of dogs. Hmm. But you know what I'm really afraid of? People. I'm afraid of people. I'm afraid of what they think of me 
what they say about me, how they'll treat me. I can let fear control me, and when it does, I make all kinds of wrong decisions, and almost always I'll end up in sin. But Christ would tell John in chapter 1, do not be afraid. He would tell this church of Smyrna, do not fear. And in fact, if you search the scriptures, we're constantly told not to fear men, but God. And yet we're told that God is love and loves us with an everlasting love. Do you remember what Paul told Timothy? For this reason, I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. How? By the power of God, not your power, who saved us and called us to be holy. In the letter to Smyrna, Jesus told them, yes, you're going to suffer, and the devil, the roaring lion, will be behind it. But notice what he says, even Satan has a time limit for 10 days, 10 days, And people have written oodles of books about what these 10 days mean. Here, let me tell you what they mean. I don't know and I don't care. Because here's what it means. There's a time limit. There's a limit of suffering. Satan cannot do what he wants, when he wants, as long as he wants. He cannot go beyond what Christ allows him. Job learned it. David learned it. I encourage you to read Psalm 56. He said, they enjoy making me cry. They enjoy taking my life away. They enjoy hurting me. But I trust God. And notice what he says. Look at what he says next. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful. Faithfulness is the quality descriptive of God's ongoing relationship to the world and a believer's desired relationship to God and others. In other words, just as God is faithful, we have a raging storm out there, but I can tell you the sun will set and the sun will rise because God is faithful. And we're called to be faithful. Jesus doesn't ask us to be faithful for no reason. Notice, in Isaiah he said, fear not, I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Believers, you and I are called to faithfulness to God and the gospel and to others. Christians are challenged to maintain a steadfast trust in God. Even as we face our trials and our suffering, faithfulness in life results from faith in God. And faith in God means we'll be faithful to others. So dependability and commitment to others is an essential expression of faithfulness to God. The Lord says, right, look at it in verse 10, be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. Have you ever wondered why The preacher of Hebrews says what he does in Hebrews chapter 12. What is it about this great cloud of witnesses that he talks about? What is it about the superiority of Christ? The old preacher Leonard Ravenhill said, when I read Hebrews 11, I fall on my face because not one person in Hebrews 11 ever had a Bible. Yet it says they subdued kingdoms, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions. Trust Jesus. 
Charles Spurgeon said, if, you, if any of us have not yet believed in Christ as God, we do not know the Christ of the Scriptures at all. So let me ask you, do you believe in Christ with your life? Do you trust in Jesus with your marriage? Do you trust in Jesus with your children? Young people, do you trust in Jesus with your career or your grades or your sexuality? Do you trust in Jesus for your friendships? Or do you only trust yourself? Is everything based on your feelings, your circumstances, what seems right to you? Are any of us brave enough to cling to the hope of the gospel that when we do that, we can take it because that'll help us face any set of circumstances we face? Because look at verse 11 and this comforting promise. Notice what he says. In verse 11, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. See, I love that quaint saying of a dying man. He said, I have no fear of going home. I've sent all before me. God's finger is on the latch of my door, and I am ready for him to enter. And one of his loved ones next to him said, but are you not afraid that you're going to miss your inheritance? <laughs> no, he said, because there's only one crown in heaven, which even the April angel Gabriel could not wear. It will fit no head but mine, because Christ made it especially for me. This is the hope of the gospel. If you believe and trust the Lord Jesus, if you've repented of your sin, if you have been renewed in heart, you are one of God's people. No one else shall have your portion. So are you discouraged? Are you in the verge of giving in? Is temptation seeming to overcome you? Have you fallen prey to sin or the devil? Do you feel like it's not just worth it? And then listen to Job. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand upon the earth at that last day. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. This is the promise of every believer. Jesus doesn't need you to be strong for him. He simply wants us to trust him and his strength. In Ezekiel, it says, I will look for those who are lost and bring back those who wander off, bandage those that are hurt, and heal those who are sick. Here's the biggest issue you and I have. You've got to be willing to say, uh, I'm the one that was lost. Or I am lost. Uh, I, I'm the one that has wandered off. I am the one that needs a bandage because I'm hurt. I'm the one that needs healing because I'm sick. Are there, greatest promise, are there greater promises that when you and I know we fail, get discouraged and struggle with our faith, than Jesus says, if you will listen to me and trust in me, you will be the conqueror who will not be hurt by the second death. The trouble is that we are so often tempted to listen to the lies of Satan who whispers, you can't do it. Jesus isn't here. You're all alone. You don't have the strength. You won't last. And that's why Spurgeon said, if you cannot magnify God, it is probably because you are magnifying yourself. That's why the psalmist said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but I, we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So the question this morning is, who are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? I mean, honestly. Because remember, 
Jesus is eternal. He is victorious. He is all-knowing. He is balanced. He's in control. He's purposeful, and he's generous. (laughs) William Wilberforce put it like this, if we would love him affectionately and rejoice in Christ as triumphantly as the first Christians did, we must learn like them to put our entire trust in him and to adopt the language of the apostle. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And so I want to ask you this morning, Do you know this Jesus, the first and the last, the one who was dead but is now alive, the one who knows your tribulation and your suffering and your slander and your poverty, the one who says, be not afraid, suffer well. This life is not as good as it gets, folks. Newsflash. We're living this. Even our own church. Men and women in our own church have experienced the loss of loved ones this past week. There's a whole denomination this morning in the Pentecostal Assemblies of Newfoundland as they awoke to the word that one of their dear pastors hit a moose yet last night on a motorcycle and was killed. This is the reality of life. This is the reality of life. But Andrew Wilson sums it up that we must believe and trust and live today. We lost Queen Elizabeth this last week. 96 years of age. She was considered the greatest monarch of our generation. But I saw a Facebook meme that showed her in heaven kneeling down before the throne of King Jesus. Andrew Wilson, who's a British pastor, says, There are no transfers of power in heaven, no royal funerals, no changes of prime minister. No doubts about whether the new ruler will rule like the old one. Christ's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And today we celebrate the unchanging sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. Happy Lord's Day. This is the message to Smyrna. Stop trusting yourself. How's it working out for you? Start trusting in God. Trust the love of Jesus in your life so that we can spread the love of Jesus in other lives. Scotty Smith puts it like this, and I end. Friends, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And whether Jesus return will come or our funeral comes first. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. So what's my message? What's Jesus' message to the church of Smyrna? Trust him now. Love him now. Love others how he loves us. And let them see our joy in the midst of of amazing suffering for his power and his name and his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, may my friends and my family gathered in this room watching on a tablet or a phone or a computer at home, 
visitors that have come and traveled on a stormy day to sing and hear God's word preached. Lord, if there is any man or woman gathered here that doesn't know you, may they know the calm and the safety and the courage to respond to that still small voice of God. If there are men and women in this room that are struggling, struggling to trust you, struggling to make sense of setbacks and opposition, tempted to be unforgiving or bitter. Father, if there's men and women here tempted to feel like it's not worth it or that you don't love them or that you have given up or that the world wins, if there are others like me that are afraid of people or opinions, scared of pain, Lord, help us to trust you. Help young adults to trust you with their lives and their career. Help them to trust you with what you say about them and their mind and their bodies and their relationships. Help them and help me and help us to trust your word in our marriages and our families and our friendships. Oh God, may there be an attitude here of, well, let us hear what the Spirit says to the church of Smyrna. To trust you and your love and your power and your might so that we will suffer well, but that the joy of the Lord will be our strength. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.